0: this month on the Voices of Experience podcast. How does a marketing and analytics expert in the video game industry end up publishing a children's book?
1: And other people are probably wondering, how did you go from the forefront of, you know, interactive digital entertainment to the most analog version of entertainment?
0: That's Jody Antipas, a Daniels MBA alumna and vice president of consumer marketing at Electronic Arts. Much like her unconventional entry into the video game industry, Antipas never thought she'd become a published author. Instead, she's kept an open mind in her career, following passions as they present themselves and never shying from a challenge. Now she's embarking on a novel journey, taking some time away from her career to prioritize something new, herself.
1: I'm in my 40s and I finally gave myself permission that I could take a break and I didn't have to be 65 when I did that.
0: Antipas joined to discuss the winding path that led her to the video game industry, her thoughts on what the next frontier of gaming holds, and why she's stepping back from her career. Jody, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: I want to jump right in here and talk about your career and sort of what led you to it. Uh, You have an unorthodox journey into the video game industry. Is it true that you weren't allowed to play video games when you were younger?
1: Well, I wouldn't say it was totally forbidden, but it only took me a couple of times asking my parents to If I could have a Nintendo or a Super Nintendo uh, back in the 1980s to realize that that was never going to happen, so I just stopped asking pretty quickly. But I would uh, summarize my gameplay experience as a kid as watching a lot of of Super Mario Brothers, watching my friends play, and then I would get my turn played for maybe 30 to 45 seconds before (laughs) I died, and then would hand the controller back to them. So I will say as an adult, I have a deep appreciation for how um, the multiplayer game experience has evolved um, and has really supported players like me who um, didn't have a great experience or didn't have a lot of great skills to, um, you know, to do single player gaming when they were growing up. So I think that's a really great innovation for
0: kids. Great. And was that part of the reason you were drawn to this for your career?
1: I think I, like you said, my, my path to gaming was pretty unorthodox. I joined Nintendo back in 2007, shortly after Nintendo launched the Wii. For anyone who remembers the Wii, it was a really interactive gameplay gaming experience, um, a lot of uh, effort to target moms and kids and families. And so that felt really approachable to me. I will say, at the time, I remember picking up a copy of Nintendo Power magazine before my interview and thinking to myself, "I really got to pretend like I know what I'm talking about here." So skimming that, trying to learn some of the characters, and um, uh, but uh, that—that's when I joined Nintendo and was really my first foray into the gaming industry. Um, really, as a player, I started playing a lot more games at that point, and um, as an employee.
0: Great, and we'll dive deeper into that as we go here. Um, But I wanted to take a step back and talk a little bit more about your journey uh, and specifically how Daniels helped shape it. While you left DU with an MBA, I understand you had been pondering law school first. What changed on your end?
1: I um, got my undergraduate degree at the University of Pennsylvania, which is a great school um, and was a very pre-professional environment, in my opinion. Really academically focused. A lot of my peers at school knew what they wanted to do from a really young age. And I didn't at least that was my perception is that they knew what they wanted to do. Lots of kids going to med school, law school, wanting to work on wall street. Um, I don't think I even knew what wall street careers were until I got to Penn Um, and lots of kids enrolled in the Wharton school. So for me trying to figure out what I wanted to do was it was a little bit of an intimidating environment. And I loved reading. I liked history. I liked writing. I liked political science classes. And all of that really led me to the, oh, my next step should be law school without a lot of really deep thinking about what that meant, what my career was going to be like, what work I was going to be doing and how I would be spending my time um, you know, in my career for the next 20, 30, 40 years. And so I always when i mentor younger students and college students and people trying to figure out what they want to do i always tell them it's okay to not know what you want to do when you're 22 to 23. Um, and so i took the lsat and was starting to apply to law schools and just really couldn't answer the question they asked which was why do you want to be an attorney or what work do you want to do and um that you know, I, I would say I had a, a crisis of confidence at age 23 because I had no idea what I wanted to do. And I had spent most of my college career thinking I was going to you know, take the path and, and mm-hmm. follow the path into law school. So I ended up at an open house. Uh, I had moved to Denver and was living with a friend. I um, was working as an intern at the Colorado Golf Association in denver and i ended up in an open house for du's mba program and they had a concentration in sports management and mm-hmm. i thought i oh, go check that out uh, and shortly thereafter i enrolled and was accepted and started my path down getting um, an mba with a concentration in sports management thinking i might want to work in professional sports mm-hmm. or working in, as an athletic director at a university I had been a college athlete at Penn. I was a volleyball player through college, Division One volleyball player. Um, So that was something that was familiar to me, and I thought where I could contribute and really was passionate about that space. So um, it was a pretty big pivot from, you know, thinking I was going to law school to interning at a golf association to, you know, applying and enrolling and getting into an MBA program, um, all within the span of, you know, about... 10 months, sure. but it was a, a great decision for me. And I think it opened a lot of doors um, and led me down a career path that they otherwise might not have considered.
0: Mm-hmm. I understand that you also left Daniels with a little more than your degree. Uh, you shared with me that you found someone uh, important to you while you were here uh, as this episode debuts around Valentine's day. Could you share more about the Daniels matchmaking experience as well?
1: Sure. So yes, I left <laughs> Daniels with, um, Uh, I met my husband. So my husband and I met in, um, for many years, we had a debate about what class we actually met in, but after, um, about 10 years of marriage, we found a notebook with, um, one of our course notebooks that had the date and time of the class that we actually met in. So we met in, in stats, 3,900, um, (laughs) in 2005. So that was, um, you know, it was great. We did a lot of classes together and, um, some members of our class had gone to the outdoor leadership experience together. And I don't know if that's a class that's still offered at Mm. DU, but we were doing, you know, ropes courses. And while a bunch of us were there, we all agreed to sign up to run a half marathon together. And pretty quickly my husband and I were the only two that actually kept up the commitment (laughs) of training for the half marathon. So we went from, you know, training buddies, classmates and training buddies, and then, you know, started dating from there. So a uh, great way to get to know people. You can see if someone's really, really boring or if you have a lot to talk about with them over a 13 mile run.
0: <laughs> great. That's not something we put in the Daniel's curriculum, but, you know, a, a lovely uh, outcome of, of your time here. So
1: Yeah, it worked out. <laughs>
0: Uh, let's talk about your career uh, across your time at Nintendo and EA. You worked on teams in research, analytics, consumer marketing, and more. What can companies glean from player data and how does that inform their decisions?
1: Well, there's really s- has been so much change in the data space since the time that I started in the industry. When I think back to 2007. Um, at Nintendo in my earliest days, I don't even think there was a data science team. And what, if you think about how, um, important data science is to most technology and internet companies today, it's pretty amazing mm-hmm. how much evolution um, has happened in that space. Back then we were asking players, a lot of behavioral questions. So what mode did you play? When did you play? Um, Who are you playing with? Mm. And all of that data, all of those behavioral type questions. Now we can capture from, you know, obviously players opt into it, but we can capture from the, from the gaming system. And so we spend a lot more of our time on the, on the data side now and on the consumer research side, asking players for questions around their motivations or why they play a particular game or why they love games and, not just what they're doing, and then mm-hmm. looking at marrying that that um, motivational data with the behavioral data that we get from player games. So there's a lot of really powerful data and really interesting data sets that we get um, from players. And I think this goes back to the first question that you, one of the first questions that you asked me is how does it, how does a non-gamer end up working in the gaming industry yeah. for you know 15 plus years? And it's really, you know, one of the main reasons for me is like really interesting data sets. Um, that you can work on real time with player feedback and work creatively with developers and artists and designers to solve player problems. So I think one really good example of that is looking at a map in the Battlefield game several years ago and recognizing that it was completely unbalanced, which mm-hmm. means you know, to a non-gamer that um, you know, you're playing two, two multiplayer teams against each other. And in this particular map setting, one team would win. It didn't matter how good the players were. It was just that the game setup and the structure was really unbalanced. And so we took a look at that and particularly we compared it to the other eight maps of this particular game. And, you know, all the other, all of the other maps had normal distributions, uh, like a normal bell curve of win loss records for Mm -hmm. each team. And this particular map was just, there was, there was, no correlation, no, um, uh, you know, a lot of noise in the data. And so we knew that there was actually something wrong with the structure. It wasn't just the players, um, the, you know, who was playing or how they were playing. So, you know, we took a step back and met with the design team, um, and, Recognize that it was imbalanced, and what can we do about that? So we added armored vehicles. We added like a new capture point in the map. So it's a really interesting example. And we deploy, redeployed some of these um, changes to the map and changes to the game in a patch, which is something that you can do in a video game that you can't do in a lot of other products. Sure. Um, and you know, we saw almost immediate improvement. So it's one example of some of the many things that you can do with players. Um, and their data and really trying to figure out how to improve the player experience and making it um, more enjoyable for them.
0: Yeah. And I think the point on patch patches is a really interesting one. there's a whole generation of games that if the game came out and it was broken, there was no fixing it. That was the game. That's not the case anymore. These games are constantly evolving based on player feedback, you know, data. That's, I think that's a really interesting point we reach now versus where we were, you know, I don't know how many years ago, but years ago.
1: Yeah. Games are constantly evolving. Um, you know, we talk a lot about games today as live services. So we're constantly working with teams to deploy new content, to keep the experience fresh and exciting. Um, but also to fix problems and fix bugs. And so it really is the launch of a game is really just the start of its journey with consumers. And so um, it's a very different experience, especially as games are becoming more free to play um, where you know, they'll join a game and anyone can join for free and, and the experience um, monetization is supported by the content that players buy um, for other activities that they wanna do in the game.
0: I think something else uh, I'm interested in, in hearing your perspective on is the fact that this technology is clearly evolving, right? And games now are, you know, almost lifelike, depending on, you know, what the focus is. Is there a connecting thread from the Atari Pong days to the games of today? Is there something that that carries over?
1: I think, you know, a great player experience is something that has carried through from the beginning, um, earliest days of gaming until... Mm-hmm now i think what that means and how that has evolved because the technology that is um supported today has really changed games have a really there's a really fine balance in games between being um fun and being difficult sure which is which is different i talked to you know a lot of friends in the software industry um or friends who do user experience design and you tell them you know like it doesn't really have to be fun uh, for someone to figure out how to deposit money into their bank. Yeah. They functionally need to know how to do that and have to be able to do that in a reasonable amount of time and, and not get frustrated with it. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't necessarily need to be fun. Um, and when you think about a game experience needing to be you know difficult enough that people want to continue playing it, but easy enough that they're not going to give up, fun enough that they're getting some enjoyment out of it, but hard enough that there's like a little bit of frustration to keep you going for it. Because if it's too easy, we know that people are going to quit just like nobody wants to watch a blowout football game on TV. You want to watch that close game. You want to watch the team struggle and the team, you know, like, Oh, that was such a great game to watch. Right. Nobody Mm -hmm. wants to watch a blowout basketball game or blowout football game. It's the same with games. And so finding that, um, kind of that point is really difficult. Um, but it's something that I think is really important and how that has evolved. Um, probably it's, it's the same concept, but because of the different features and functionality that technology has enabled, um, it becomes more and more complex to be able to do that and do that well
0: today. At the height of your time at EA, you managed a team of over 110. What are the most important leadership qualities to have when you oversee a team that large?
1: I think one of the reasons I stayed at EA for 12 years, um, which is a really long time, you know, today's day and age, particularly in marketing and analytics and insights, Mm -hmm. you don't see people stay at one job for that long. But EA is a company where leadership is appreciated um, and it's something that is invested in. And that's something that I have really enjoyed over the course of my career. When you have a large team, you really can't do it all, all on your own. And so you have to rely on great talent and build a set of leaders around you um, to support you and to really lead lead the work. Um, so I spent a lot of my time investing in finding the right talents, recruiting um, and putting the right talent in the right role. Um, and in many cases, removing the wrong talent from the from the wrong role sure. um, and helping find, you know the right career paths for people to be successful and for teams to be successful. I think another thing that great leaders do is acknowledge that when you start leading larger teams um, and with that leading multiple functions and different functions, that um, you're far outside of your own area of expertise. In my case, you know, my expertise is in consumer insights and research and analytics. And have expanded my career over time to include marketing technology and lifecycle marketing and media strategy and media mm-hmm. planning. And at that point, um, you know, your job is not being the expert in those functions, it's really leading and listening and supporting and figuring out how you use the right resources that you have at your disposal. And how can you help those experts in those roles? make the right decisions um, and support them to solve problems that need to be solved. And so it's much less about the functional area and more about, you know, what what leadership skills are you flexing to be able to help your team succeed? Sure. And using objectivity to make some really difficult decisions at times.
0: Mm-hmm. And has that experience led you to additional coaching and career development opportunities?
1: At one point in my career, I was leading user experience research, which might not sound like a stretch for someone who led consumer insights and analytics, but a big part of the role was overseeing the teams that were giving feedback to the development teams on gameplay quality and game design. And that was a huge stretch for me personally Mm -hmm. and a really vulnerable space for me as I talked about earlier in the podcast, not having a huge gaming background. Um, and so, you know, giving feedback to some renowned developers within EA about, you know, what players were telling us about their game, um, really had to leverage my objective mindset. It didn't really matter what I thought of the game. Um, but this is what players were telling us. This is what we were seeing in our labs. And so I think that was an opportunity for me to see how I was really relying on my leadership skills, not my game design skills Mm -hmm. or um, my my user research um, or game developer skills. It was really what leadership and how could I take that feedback and share that in the most effective manner with um, some of our teams internally.
0: Great. You recently went on leave from EA in a move that you described as an opportunity to recharge and focus on some other projects, one of which we'll get to shortly, so hang on. Um, What motivated that decision, and was it challenging to ultimately take the plunge into, into leave?
1: I would say it was a big challenge for me to come to terms with the fact that I think I needed to take some time off it's probably not a wholly unique answer for someone like me who's had a pretty intense job and Mm -hmm. two kids and lived through, um, the last couple of pandemic years and spent some time thinking about what I really want and starting to get a little bit burned out. So, um, it did, I took a lot of time and and was thinking about what do I want from my next, next chapter. Mm -hmm. And, what I ultimately decided is I wanted to give myself some time and it took me a little while to wrap my head around that. Um, It might've been an obvious decision to a lot of people, but it's something that I really had to wrestle with. I'm, I'm in my forties and I finally gave myself permission that I could take a break and I didn't have to be 65 when I did that. So Mm -hmm. I am spending some time recharging and, you know, reading, uh, which is something that I love to do and doing yoga and exercising and cooking and making jam and, you know, (laughs) just things that I didn't have the time um, or mental energy to do when I, you know, was working more than full time and had two kids and spending a lot more time with my family. So it's been, uh, it's only been a couple of weeks. So I would say I'm still in in the decompression (laughs) phase of, of taking a leave of absence. But it's been really refreshing to have some kind of time and, and mind space back.
0: Great. I think there's a really important lesson there for our listeners. You know, doesn't matter how old you are or how long you've been in your career. If you need time for yourself, I think you just shared that you need to take it. And I think I, I just wanted to call that out again, um, because I think that's an important lesson for, for our listeners.
1: I totally agree. And I think there's a, a lot, it's a lot um, more common now. Um, particularly after the pandemic, I think as a woman, I was really hesitant to, I even said to my boss at the time, like, I just don't want to be mommy tracked. Um, And he said to me, he's like, I don't know what that means. And I said, well, of course you don't know what that means because you're a man. (laughs) Um, But I didn't want to feel like I put 20 years into my career and that I was just throwing it all away. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that was something that I really had to wrestle with. How was I going to, you know, emotionally handle taking this time off.
0: Mm-hmm. As I mentioned, you have one big project that you recently revealed, a children's book. How does a marketing and analytics expert land on a children's book? I understand your family had some influence on the topic.
1: And other people are probably wondering, how did you go from the forefront of, you know, interactive digital entertainment <laughs> to the most analog version of entertainment? Um <laughs> But I think I mentioned a couple of times that I love books. I've always been a big reader. My mom was an English teacher. So whenever I asked for that, you know, Nintendo, they would tell me to go climb a tree or read a book. So, (laughs) um, and I think over the years I've always wanted to be a writer. If you asked me what I wanted to be when I was in elementary school, I would have said an author or a writer. Mm -hmm. I've taken some creative writing courses i took some when i lived in denver i took some um, creative writing courses at du at one point after i had received my mba Mm -hmm. so it's something i've dabbled in over time but never really seriously put a lot of effort behind and about four years ago someone told my then six-year-old that she was too curious and she came home from school one day and she said you know i'm too curious and i asked too many questions and i thought to myself what are you talking about? You're six. You're supposed to be curious. And I love your curiosity. Mm -hmm. And she's, you know, such a great critical thinker and loved the questions that she asked and it just, it crushed her. And then it crushed me because I thought who, you know, how can one person have this much of an impact on you? So that night I made up a bedtime story for her. And then the next night she asked me, to tell her the same bedtime story and probably like many parents I thought to myself what story did I tell you last night uh, and had to rethink that and so you know for several years this was just a story that existed in the notes section of my phone and I would occasionally tell it and then um, you know a year or two later my then four-year-old said oh, mommy I love this book but it needs pictures and so I thought okay maybe I'll give this a shot and I shared the story with a couple of, um, early childhood educators and teachers that I knew. And they said, I need this book in my classroom. I, I, you know, remember one of them just saying, I need this book. There's nothing like this that really hits on, um, you know, curiosity and a little bit of shame and embarrassment. There's Mm -hmm. books about making mistakes and, um, lots of books about girls, and STEM, but there's nothing really around that intersection of embarrassment and shame um, and overcoming that. Um, and so I decided to go for it.
0: Are you planning on writing another one? Is that something that's on your agenda? Do your daughters have ideas for uh, follow-ups or anything like that?
1: I am not sure if I'm going to go for a second book or not yet at this point. What's so interesting about books these days is that so many of them are written in series. So if you think about you know, Cat Kid Comic Club and Bad Kitty. There's like so many of them. Um, and I was just happy getting my one book out into the world. And so I'm not sure if I'm going to do a series yet, but whenever I read to classes and kids, they do ask like, where's the next book? And what's the theme of the next story? So I'm not sure. I do love Grace, the main character of my book. I think she's done a really great job of bringing, um, you know, a lesson, a needed lesson to kids. So we'll see if there's something else in the works for, for her and for me.
0: Great. And for our listeners, uh, the title of Jody's book is Just Like an Astronaut. Um, we'll link that in our show notes. So feel free to pop on over there uh, after this if you want to take a peek at it. Our last question here, Jody, uh, is is themed around the book again. Well, Just Like an Astronaut is primarily focused on children and encouraging them to follow their curiosity. The message I'm sure extends to an older audience as well. As a voice of experience and a guest on this podcast, what is something else you'd like to share with our listeners?
1: I think my advice for listeners would be, be open to the twists and turns that might come in your career. Uh, I think I never would have expected to spend 15 years working in the gaming industry and then publishing a book. So, Give yourself opportunity, be open to opportunities that come your way that you might not expect, um, things that you might not plan for can open some really amazing doors for you.
0: Fantastic. Well, thank you, Jody. We really appreciate you joining us on the Voices of Experience podcast. uh, And thank you for sharing that wisdom.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: For more on this episode, including a link to Just Like an Astronaut, be sure to check out our show notes. You can find those and more at Daniels.du.edu slash VoE-Podcast. The VoE Podcast is an extension of Voices of Experience, the signature speaker series at the Daniels College of Business, sponsored by US Bank. Patrick Orr and Chloe Smith are our sound engineers. Alumnus Joshua Metzel wrote our theme. And I'm Nick Greenhelsch. Until next time, be sure to subscribe and leave us a rating and review.